0: Hey, friends, are you familiar with the most trusted business network for business executives? It's the C Suite Network. If you're a business of $5 million or greater, and if you're a VP level or higher, then you're invited to join the C Suite Network to connect with your business peers. Go to C Suite Network.com, that's a C Suite Network.com to learn more about the benefits, meetings, and services exclusive for C Suite executives like you. Okay, let's do the show. It's time to Accelerate. Hi, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 459 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record, where I hold in-depth conversations with today's leading experts in sales, marketing, and leadership six days a week. Now, there are thousands of you that listen to Accelerate every day. I I love your loyalty. I love your support. And I'd love you even more if you took a second and subscribed to Accelerate. You can do that right on your phone. And if you left a quick review for Accelerate on iTunes, again, love you even more. You can do that right from the podcast app there on your phone. In fact, if you want to put it on pause, we'll wait. When you come back, we'll be right here. Okay, thanks. So, one of the hardest things a sales leader can do is hire salespeople. Getting it right is so important because getting it wrong can be hugely distracting and costly in terms of lost time and opportunity. So, to help you get it right, I've created a guide to hiring the right sales candidates for your company. It's called How to Hire a Winning Sales Team, the Sales Leader's Five-Step Guide to Better Sales Hiring, and it's free. Just go to accelerate.fm forward slash winning to download your free guide. Again, that's accelerate.fm forward slash winning to get your free copy today. Now, joining me on the show is John H. Johnson. John is President CEO at Edgeworth Economics. He's a keynote speaker and co-author of a really excellent book that I think should be required reading for every CEO and sales leader who is enthralled with the idea of using data to help manage sales. It's called, name of the book, it's called Every Data, The Misinformation Hidden in the Little Data You Consume Every Day. And I love this book because John shows very clearly how we all misinterpret or misunderstand what data is trying to tell us. And he illustrates his points with I don't know, painful examples from the increasing amounts of data we are all exposed to online every day. And I'm really looking forward to talk with him about the subject helping shed some light for you on how we should be using data to help us manage sales. So, John, welcome to Accelerate.
1: Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So, take a minute sir, fill out that introduction, that skeletal introduction I gave of you.
1: Uh, okay. <laughs> I thought it was nice. Uh, yeah. So, I am a Ph.D. economist uh, with a particular expertise in a field called econometrics. My firm is a data-driven company, and a lot of our work uh, involves looking at processing and explaining very large data sets. Uh, We generally do that in a number of contexts, but one of them is in litigation, often at the company-type litigation, where there's millions or even billions of dollars at stake. Mm -hmm. Uh, But The common theme of everything we do here is how can you use analytics, statistical concepts, marry that with economics and what we know about how markets work, and really provide an intuitive and credible understanding of data.
0: Okay. So, was that a similar motivation then for why you wrote your book, Every Data?
1: Well, yes. I mean, you know, a lot of my time is spent in courtrooms and, you know, In that context, I'm constantly teaching about these types of data issues. And I'd want to sort of step back and try to bring that to a broader audience and really relate it to the real world things that people see every day. Because when you do this kind of work, you know, you start to see in every single news story, every book you read, every time you hear something on the radio, you, you have a certain sort of data sense. And the goal of the book was to try to help people develop their intuition so they could make better decisions with data.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you'd, <laughs> we could start with the blanket statement, you know, Mark Twain, as I'm sure he'll wear You know, there's mm-hmm. well, lies, damn lies, and statistics, as, as he summarized it. Um, so, it seems like, you know, a big problem, and you talk about this in the book, is that people you know reading a newspaper article online or or any sort of story online or wherever they consume it or even listening to a show like this is that they hear a you know a data related fact and they accept it at face value
1: right i mean the starting point i think is sort of recognition okay there is more data today than we've had at any other time in um Humanity. Uh, one sort of uh, estimate from IBM says that you know ninety percent of the world's data has been created in the last two years. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. So we are confronted with data. We have so much more data. Your smartphone and the power of a smartphone. You compare that. I always joke about the first computer I ever saw was an Atari four hundred in the nineteen eighties that mm. you know, my grandfather bought, and we all ran to my grandfather's house to play Pac Man. Um, but you know that little computer, my 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 smartphone has you know hundreds of not thousands of times the computing power of what a computer could do at that point in time.
0: Oh, so yeah, hundreds of thousands.
1: We, right. So we have you know every day now we're confronted with so much information, and then you couple that with the fact that people don't historically have a lot of specialized training in statistics, uh, math, you know, and oftentimes people are afraid of it. So that kind of creates the perfect storm for people to be misled abused, uh, just misunderstand data. And people recognize, I think, generally, that numbers are important, things being quantified, but they don't always know the next step. Like, how do I think about a number and whether it's actually applicable to me?
0: Right. I mean, as you talk about in the book, it's just the mere fact of an existence of a statistical relationship between two factors doesn't imply there's actually a, <laughs> a meaningful right. link between them. <laughs> right. I mean, we, we
1: talk a lot of the book with examples. I mean, the whole goal was to make it something that was readable, where people who maybe didn't love math or statistics could just sort of key off the intuition. So we spend all the time on this key concept of correlation and causation, and what does it mean when you find some statistical relationship. And our lead example on that is about how to make kids smarter. And we talked about the fact that if you want to really make your kids smarter, you could have them buy them an iPhone, uh, let them stay up late, teach them how to juggle, uh, have them listen to Radiohead. Uh, These were all things that we found news stories that reported there were statistical relationships to show that there were ways to make kids smarter. Now, we said that a little tongue-in-cheek, but you could pick up almost any newspaper during the course of a week and find some story proclaiming, you know, new thing will make you smarter. (laughs) Yeah. That's a true statistical relationship, but it doesn't mean the causality is there. And so that's sort of one of the big flags we constantly talk about in the book is when you see things that talk about being make you smarter, healthier, happier, wiser, think about what that relationship actually means. And people want to jump to the causality. We're we're actually, as humans, we're kind of wired to try to connect the dots. But that doesn't always mean that just the pure existence of some statistical relationship actually is enough to
0: draw that conclusion. Well, and I think that's the part that logically is hard for people to understand is that, and we see this in sales all the time, we're entering the era of big data in sales. We've got technologies now we can use that provide a lot more transparency into our processes and activities. And so, you see this all the time. I mean, if you use this subject line on an email, customers sixty percent more likely to open it. Right.
1: <laughs> but if you didn't control for the fact that you also sent that email at you know nine in the morning on Tuesday, which happens to be a particularly good time to send emails, for example, or in a particular season when sales were would have been really good anyway right there's so many other factors right the world is not isolated in a way that it's one thing at a time right it's always an interaction of multiple things and so i think data can be incredibly powerful and informative but you have to kind of know where the limits are about what you can reasonably learn or what you can reasonably draw conclusions based off of
0: so i think that it's it's safe to say that when we look at data and and you know, we're going to talk more specifically about sales and how we relate to the data that we generate out of that. But I think just in general, it pays to have some skepticism about the data that you're confronting.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, I try to be optimistic with people about this sense of how do you develop your statistical intuition. I think you have to ask intelligent questions. That doesn't mean that every time someone uses a number, they're misleading you. That doesn't mean that there is such a thing as, not to sound political, like alternative facts is a
0: phrase that's been bounced around a lot recently. Um, and by the I time this airs, they'll probably be replaced by some new outrage, so go ahead. <laughs> right. But I think
1: that, you know, politics aside, the point is, no, numbers are not about I have my number and you have your number. It's about what actually went into the number? What is the number potentially telling us? What is it not telling us? There's no easy answers and you have to think hard. Data is empowering and can give you a lot of um, valuable insights, but it is very much still through a human eye. And so as a result of that, you know, you the same biases, the same views that people bring to any issue they can bring to the data as well.
0: Well, it's the the big sort of bias that you highlight in the book, and which you know I think people may have heard about it before. But it'd be good if you spent a little time talking about it. Is, is what's called a confirmation bias. You know, we look, we look at data and use it to. <laughs> we're not looking for an answer. We're looking for an answer that that fits the answer we already have. We're looking for data right. that fits it's- the answer we already have.
1: Yeah, exactly. As it sounds, confirmation bias is literally, I am looking for information to confirm my pre-held beliefs or my pre-held answers. So when I go to the data with a strong sense that I should see a relationship and I find it, but that forces me or in some way makes me look at the data in an incomplete way or a less than impartial way, that's potentially how you get confirmation bias. So people's preconceived notions, and oftentimes you see this in sales and industry, you know, I'm a salesman. Well, I know it works. It's, you know, it's the special way that I treat my customers. Now, that may be true, that may not be true, but if you tried to quantify that and you're sort of, well, no, you can't capture it because relationships are the only thing that matters or it's, you know, it's the way I do X, Y, Z. Those are kind of complicated issues and you can have all the data in the world, but if there isn't some sense of a is it measurable, but also are you open minded about it? It's not going to really help you get any valuable insights.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it, right. Because what as I think about that, I think about, um, you know, let's take sales for instance. But yeah, you know, ultimately, it's it's sort of really complex because you have two sentient beings that are very complex in the way they think, you know, interacting, and it's it's hard to reduce that down to I, to me at least. Yeah, you can give some statistical correlations as you talk about, but the causation really seems to be hard to pin down.
1: And, And look, I mean, academic economists and statisticians spend their whole lives trying to find ways to isolate causal relationships. If it were easy, you wouldn't... I mean, so much of the research activity at major universities in the social sciences deals with how do you identify causal relationships. So you put that in a sales setting, in a business setting, We all care about the causality, but really getting it right can be very difficult. That doesn't mean that knowing there are some statistical relationships couldn't be meaningful. That doesn't mean that there won't be certain circumstances where you, you know, might be able to draw those relationships. It just means a little bit of context and awareness helps you to make sure you're making the best possible decision. And just the existence of a statistical relationship is not enough. You've got to go deeper than that.
0: Right. Well, you get into it. In the book, when we talk, you reference social psychologists like Ron Friedman, you know, saying that, you know, part of the reason that we default to sort of conflating correlation with causality is thats is that we're hardwired to, to look for patterns in right. our brain. And, you know, Daniel Kahneman talks about this with his yep. whole system one thinking. You know, that's <laughs> that's our intuitive, emotional, that's that's you know, we've developed over tens of thousands of years but we did that because it made it made it easier for us, and it kept us safer.
1: Well, and even the most disciplined statistician scientist is prone to these things. I mean, I, I always give this example of the fact that you know I try to eat healthy, I try to exercise, but you know every time I see one of those ads for the oh new study says uh, eat five avocados a day and you'll lose five pounds in a week. I should know better, but i still inclined to go buy some avocados, right? And so... <laughs>
0: well, it's like Robert Cialdini, you know, ask him, you know, why he wrote his book, Influence, and he said, well, because I'm a sucker. <laughs> you know, I want right. to know why influence yeah. worked, right?
1: Yeah, and so, it, you know, again, I'm not trying to paint a negative um, picture of data. I'm actually a huge proponent of data and thinking rigorously about information and data and what can be learned from it. But I think as you embark on a journey where you try to think about data, you have to be very disciplined. What are the types of questions you're trying to answer? Does the data you have actually give you enough complete information to answer the questions? Um, what would be ideal in a world where maybe you don't have the ideal information? What can you learn? What are the limitations? That's a much more helpful framework than thinking the data is going to give you the definitive answer simply because you have a lot of it.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think also, again, people, back to the point we made before is, is people tend to use data to fit an answer they already have. I mean, I just, you know, I read a book that I have a guest that I interviewed on the show, and and yeah, it was a well-done book, a lot of impressive research went into it, but clearly there were times when, you know, the data was fitting the preconceived answer.
1: Right, and I think that is, you know, look, real objective science is about posing a question, hypothesis testing, trying to figure out what it means. A lot of us in whether it's business, whether it's in sales, whether it's in other types of jobs where they're confronted with data, it's there's more than data in the real world, you know? You've got personal relationships, you've got HR situations, you've got so many different things that kind of have to be accounted for. When you're running a business, uh, it it can be hard and in fact it, it can be counterproductive to be only focused on the data. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just, you can't imagine, I can't imagine doing all the complexities of my job if the only thing I did was, let me try to simplify my entire business down to numbers. That doesn't mean there isn't a lot of value that's gained from numbers and looking at the statistics and looking at data on different elements of the business, but it would be foolish to think that a myopic approach that was only based on data could actually get me all the way there.
0: Well, but that's really one that's interesting as we start trending the conversation here into the sales world, is, is that is one of the huge trends in sales we see with some uh, proponents of the point of view that the art of selling, defined as interpersonal interaction, is dead. It's all about the science of selling, which is the data, right? I'm going I'm to commit so many activities and I'm going to look at the pattern, the data based on the patterns of what I achieve with those activities and that's going to tell me exactly what we need to do to increase sales. Well, look, I, I think
1: there's micro and macro level type analyses. Okay, I, I don't question that you can look at large volumes of data and find different levers that might at least on their surface appear to really tell you something meaningful about your business or about what drives sales. I mean, there's a whole mm-hmm. field of demand modeling where sure. I think we can do good jobs with that. But again, I think that is more of an input into how one thinks about the structure of their sales force, of their business, of where they you know, allocate their resources. Um but that doesn't necessarily replace or mean the paradigm that sales also involve certain interpersonal skills or other things doesn't also matter. Mm-hmm. I don't think they have to be mutually exclusive, right. but I think sometimes people treat it as all or nothing. you know it's sort of the classic baseball money ball versus what Scouts see with their eyes mm-hmm. right. Um, I think a lot of the sophisticated ball clubs have integrated, serious data analysis but i don't think they've also gutted their scouting departments that the only thing they do is collect numbers and sit on the computer right so just the same kind of thing data can be empowering can provide real serious answers can provide insights but you know let's take our sales example how do you actually capture what it means to have an interpersonal sales relationship in data All right how do i know this salesman is particularly good because of xyz well but those so- are harder hard, hard things to quantify, some people would say, well, you don't have to worry about it at all.
0: That's what I was going to say. Some people say, look, if we know that 60% of the time this happens as a result of, you know, if X happens as a result of Y action, then we just need to have, (laughs) get to the point where we have inputs into our system, we have more Y taking place. But
1: before you can make that leap, you have to rule out that those other factors actually matter too. Well, right, and the danger that, that's is, to your course, rule. that's that why to your point,
0: that's why we need to make that integration of of the soft yeah. and the hard happen with the data because right. yeah, it's all sort of one or nothing, all right. or nothing. The, right now. The,
1: the danger is, okay, I think that if we just do more of X, you know, if we have more online marketing campaigns, we saw a spike in sales of sixty percent and that's enough to do it. Then you find out after the fact, the reason why the online campaign was successful is because the salesman was following up individually with their clients. And you miss that, you've missed a key component of the interaction. I'm not suggesting, though, that the data couldn't give you very valuable insights as to this could work mm-hmm. or this can't. I'm just saying it should be put in the context. I think that's really trying to get at that causal relationship versus just accepting there's a blind correlation. Now, look, but, sometimes I think that's, and I think that is the key point. I mean, I'd, sometimes a rough hammer works, right? Sometimes you might have a particular business where it's enough to say, you say, look, I look in the data. I've made the determination that this tells me my sales 70% increase. That's good enough for me. I don't want to spend the time. I think that could be foolish. I don't know everybody's business, right? Different businesses could operate different ways. But if you're really thinking about the crux of getting to what the statistics can tell you, it's only a partial story if you don't really chase down what it really is telling you and
0: means. Right. Finding the causal base of it. Um, So in I want to go through some stats that we sort you of know, deal with regularly in in okay. sales and see if you had a a uh, thought about about how we might deal with it. I mean, one one that's probably the most common one is is you know, the classic Pareto distribution. Yeah, you know, on the surface, you know, eighty percent of our revenue is generated by twenty percent of our sales reps. But when I when I dig into that, you know, I work with companies on on helping them improve sales. Again, there is so many factors behind that. You know, how the accounts are allocated among the reps. You know, how the management allocates their time based on, you know, their confirmation biases of their perception of the people they're working with, and it, so it, it reinforces patterns that lead to that eighty twenty distribution. But doesn't necessarily have to be that way.
1: Well, it immediately made me think of the movie, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, you mm-hmm. know, where they talk about, I need the leads, right? Everybody needs the leads, right? What are the accounts and who do they go to, right? Um, look, there's one thing to say, I'm looking at a given set of sales numbers and observe the empirical pattern that 80% of sales are you know, coming through a certain set of reps or the like. Like You can observe all sorts of things. What that means, though, and what the actual implication for how you should or whether you even want to change that is really the interesting question, right? <laughs> um, the observation in and of itself might tell you something, but digging into well... Who are the effective reps, or why are particular customers so important, and what are their similar characteristics? To me, seems to be a much more useful way to move that or change that than the mere observation of the existence of a pattern.
0: Yeah, well, and what you see with the pattern is what I found, at least, is that again, it it tends to be self reinforced,
1: sure.
0: and so we're always in sales. We're talking about, well, geez, how do we how do we make the middle sixty percent better? Well,
1: it's also weird because, you know, oftentimes I think a mistake that people make is you, you try to force people into a box where, as opposed to playing off their strengths, you're trying to make them better at things that maybe they're never going to be good at. Right. <laughs> right. And so, how you approach that, how you think about it, I mean, when I think about the type of problem you've laid out in this example, you know, the observation of what the distribution is, there's probably meaningful information there. But again, to me, the meaningful information isn't the isn't just the observation of who's in which buckets, but it's about really how did you get into those buckets and what is it under the surface that's potentially driving them.
0: Mm-hmm. So another one that that I uh, sort of seems very interesting is is forecasting, you know, and <laughs> it's sort of one of these classic things that we're never good at it, right? In sales <laughs> and. There's all these systems that develop technology-based systems that are enable you to, you know, more automatically create forecasts based on inputs in the systems. But then you have managers taking that and downloading it into Excel spreadsheets and manipulating it by hand and so on. Um, and it seems like at least in sales, a lot of it's based off, you know, we've got sort of this weighted probability forecasting we do. And so right. it's based on the stage of the deal. So that if let's say you reach the proposal stage. People, excuse me, assign it a seventy-five percent probability of of winning. But what if you have three competitors? that are also submitted proposals. Do you all have a seventy-five percent chance of winning? Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> so, but um, that seventy-five percent goes into that's how it's you know it's weighted out in the uh, in the so forecast.
1: Look, so formulas are. Uh, formulas. Formulas are complicated, too. But forecasting is a complicated issue. You know, we've got to always start with the basic premise that any forecast is only good as the inputs that go into it and our ability to actually use past experience to predict the future. So, you know, when you're describing, you get to the proposal stage and you put in 75% as the calibration, what that means to me is that it's been your historic experience that when you've actually gotten to the proposal stage you have 175% of those you know contracts or sales jobs or bids or whatever they may be so you know the art of how do we take our past experience and use it to meaningfully predict the future when none of us are fortune tellers and how do we know again to spot the places where either a forecast could go wrong or where our Our forecast could take us just truly in the wrong direction because either we missed something, we didn't think about it carefully, or we overinterpreted what our past experience was. Um, Those are the real challenges. I think that's one of the most challenging things for all businesses, sales or otherwise, is how do I think about what the future trends are, the future sales are, the future things that are going to really affect the business. That's tough I think data can, again, be incredibly powerful and useful when used properly, but it's even more important if you're forecasting to really hone in on, what am I basing those predictions upon? What are the assumptions that underlie that forecasting model? At least if you're clear about that, then everybody's talking about it in a context that, oh, it's a series of assumptions and it's probabilistic, right? I I talk about weathermen as a great example of this. Mm. People want to know, is it going to rain tomorrow? Yes or no? They don't want to hear, chance of rain is 40%. We really can't tell you, I'm not a weatherman, but if I were, they can't tell you with certainty, is it going to rain tomorrow? The best we can ever do with forecasting is really probabilistic. And so people don't like to think of it that way as, oh, we're literally thinking about odds (laughs) and whether or not something's going to happen, not with perfect certainty, but what's most likely and that's kind of a difficult concept for people to grasp. They usually like to think about, okay, I know the answer. My sales prediction for next year is ten thousand units. They don't like to hear, well, given the data you have, they, it could be between nine thousand and eleven thousand. That's our confidence range. Mm-hmm. So those are the kind of things I think people have to think about with forecasting.
0: Well, I think they, yeah, there's sort of range of other sort of data points that again people in sales are sort of taken as. Um, You know, gospel uh, has taken those articles of faith and really be interested to get your perspective on sort of how people should be thinking about these. I mean, so, you know, one that's sort of very controversial is that some studies have come out and said that, you know, buyers now are given the power of internet and access to information, that they're now two thirds of the way through their buying process before they ever engage with a seller. But to me, it seems like one of those things that's, that's, very contextual and and hard to generalize about.
1: Well, right. I think that's right. I mean, to me, when I hear a number like that, I immediately think about the the wide variation in the way that different people go to marketplaces. Yes, the advent of Internet, Amazon, different sales channels. Of course, that can change the way different buyers behave. But it's very... I think it's a gross oversimplification to try to sort of put the diversity of customers and consumers in any marketplace uh, to think that a number like that could actually be true. Are there pockets of people that that could be true for? Absolutely. Um, Does a recognition of customer differences in the way they come to a marketplace or look for a product, is that important for salespeople? Of course it is. But sort of the blanket, you know, what is the implication of the two-thirds of the way through? Does that mean you should throw your hands up because nothing you can do? Does that mean only focus on the last third of the experience? Well, it doesn't really seem like it has a real good practical implication. I think you have to go a lot deeper to make sense of that.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, two other ones we'll talk about real quickly here before the end is, is, you know, one sort of classic one is that 50% of all qualified opportunities in your pipeline end in no decision, right? The customer makes a decision mm-hmm. not to buy anything. And another one is that uh, sort of comes out in researches that 50% of all sales reps don't make quota. Mm. Now, to me, it's like that last one in particular is very hard to, to make sense out of.
1: Yeah, so let's, you know, look, when I hear numbers like that, a couple of things I think about that I thought were kind of some good guidance. So what you really care about, if you're a salesperson or you're running a sales business, I think, is what is the what is the practical implications of those two numbers that you just gave, right? Um, and so, in some respects, like with all statistics, we talk about this a lot in our book about the fact that when someone uses a phrase, you, literally, like who you are, mm-hmm. you know, there's an implication that that statistics has an impl- a direct implication for what you should do, how you should behave, how you should act right? And, and like all aggregate statistics, it could well be on average that both of those things are true. I don't know for sure. I haven't looked into those numbers specifically. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean the average doesn't mask incredible variation. And what really matters to you is not some highly generalized number, but the specifics that apply to your business, your sales base, your customers, so that you know if it really matters or not. That's what's going to matter. And that's where the, the numbers actually become actionable, and useful. Um, And so, I'm always very leery of sort of broad statistics, not because we can't learn something, but it's how do you translate that to your own situation that really matters? And, you know, again, I don't know that those necessarily are actionable on their face alone.
0: So, take that point and maybe extend it a little bit further. So, you've got this new generation of technologies over the last, you know, three to five years that are generating Incredible amounts of data about sales activities and outcomes and so on, and creating a lot of correlations. Let's say, <laughs> um, and this is just going to become more and more prevalent. So, so how do how should managers? What would be a recommendation for managers? About how to treat this data? Because again, well, the tendency we said to do sort of the default to to our confirmation bias and use it to confirm something we already believe, but. What would you say as just sort of a a working, day-to-day sort of working rule of thumb that I could use to say, okay, how do I manage this and how do I put it to good use? All right, So I think a few things I would
1: say. So first, make sure you're framing questions appropriately. If you want to use data, you should frame it in terms of what is the question I'm trying to answer. Second, I think knowing what and where data comes from, what assumptions go into any analysis you see And then third, thinking very hard about what are the potential implications of what I'm looking at and how does it actually relate back to my first question, you know, what am I trying to answer? So the more you can be rigorous, the more you can look at numbers, but ask the important questions. You know, it really is like anything else, any other science, you're trying to dig deeper to understand what the meaning is for you or your business. um, And that usually means the superficial answers aren't good enough. Um, you can avoid a lot of confirmation bias by really skeptically looking at numbers in a way that says, okay, I think this supports my position, but how could it not? Right? Ask mm-hmm. yourself that sort of question. Um, again, a lot of what I try to get people to think about when I speak to them, when I talk, and I talk about my book, is you don't have to be a data expert. You don't have to go get a PhD from MIT to do this to be a good consumer of data. What you do have to do is ask the intelligent questions and bring enough structure to a process when you look and think about data that you're actually trying to have some objective objectivity in the thinking process. I think data is at its best when it provides discipline to thinking and thought processes.
0: And I think that's really the the hard part that we confront in sales is that Given the way it's sort of evolving these days, there's we're sort of at a sort of an inflection point a little bit where there's some some parts of the the business that are really focused on sort of quantity of activities over quality of activities, right? So it's it's the thought seems to have disappeared because we're just going to execute this process. But then, well, I think a lot
1: of businesses face that, not just sales. But I mean, you're absolutely right that it's just you've got this new tool. Does that mean, you know, I bought a new hammer. Does that mean I should hammer every single thing in my office and just keep using the hammer over and over with no blindly ignoring anything else I need? No. Same thing with data. Data is a complement to our decision making, a complement to our businesses, but it doesn't mean you have to solely rely on it. And I think there's some inherent dangers in that.
0: And you have to ask the questions, right? I mean, you have to think. And that's that was where I was driving with my point is, is we can't just take it at face value. I mean, it's, no, it's I mean, great that's available, but to your point, what are the implications of it? What are the questions we're trying to answer? And that requires a level of thought that we're not seeing quite yet, as people have this data at their disposal. There
1: is no substitute for thought. Numbers are not a replacement. You know, there's no magic here. Um, the numbers alone will not give you the whole picture. The numbers can provide the guidance to get you to the answer. But, yeah, there's no substitute for thinking hard about these types of problems.
0: Excellent. Well, John, thank you very much for being on the show. Tell people they can connect with you and find out more about what you do. And your book.
1: Oh, yeah. So the book is called Every Data, and it's available online at Amazon. And um, my website is uh, johnhjohnsonphd.com, where you can find information about my speaking engagements and some videos of my TEDx talk and some other things like that.
0: Excellent. Well, good. Well, John, thanks again for being on the show. And remember, friends, thank you for joining us today. Make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And an easy way to do that is make sure you join all my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, John H. Johnson, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So, thanks again for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.